welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. This is a limited podcast series focused on the entrepreneurial journey of crypto-native hedge fund founders. By crypto-native, I mean hedge funds created with the sole intent of dealing in digital assets. According to PwC, there are currently only around 300 crypto-specific hedge funds globally versus 30,000 life funds and other asset classes. The total liquid AUM of crypto-native hedge funds is about $4 billion. The median AUM is just shy of $25 million. This tells you how nascent the space still is. I would like this podcast series to be an opportunity for crypto hedge fund founders to share their own story and journey prior to starting their fund, tell us how their business got started and how initial success was achieved. I think our audience will also be keen to hear how the current crypto winter is affecting the sector of the blockchain economy and what the future holds in their opinion. My guest today is Charles Huang, Chief Investment Officer of Lightning Capital Partners. Lightning Capital runs a long short discretionary crypto asset fund. Before founding the hedge fund, Charles was a valuation consultant and a forensic accountant at Ernst & Young LLP. Prior to that, he worked as a senior equity trader starting in May 2000. He is also an adjunct professor at Baruch College in New York, teaching a course on blockchain and crypto assets for the past five years. Mr. Huang received a master's degree in accounting from Baruch College and a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Rochester. He's a chartered financial analyst and a certified public accountant. This podcast was recorded prior to the revelations surrounding the financial health of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange and its affiliate Alameda Research. I confirmed with Charles that Lightning Capital was not holding assets on FTX at the time it unraveled. The FTX debacle highlights the risks of custodying digital assets with vastly unregulated participants. The hope is that this will strengthen the industry moving forward, ranging from enhanced customer protections to systemic risk mitigation and sound regulation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in Queens, New York, um, borough in Queens, where borough of New York City, where it's a very inner city where I grew up, and really I had nothing. Right, single mother raising me and my sister um, in New York, in Queens, New York. And I was always fascinated with finance. I don't know why, maybe I'm predispositioned towards it, but I wanted to make money too. I didn't like being poor. Um, and so thankfully, when in the late 1990s, when I was in college, I would come back to New York City from Rochester, New York, and I would help build out trading floors. And it was a great experience for me uh, from 96 to 2000. When I graduated in 2000, I wanted to become a trader. I saw all these traders make so much money. Some of them, you know, unfortunately were like, I guess fortunately or unfortunately weren't even that bright, but made millions of dollars. And, and I wanted to be one of those guys. If you remember in the year 2000 is the dot-com bust. And so it was harder to make money during those down markets. And many of the guys that I worked with that I started with in 2000 decided to start shorting the market. We realized that you cannot make money long only. And we start to really capitalize on shorting and started to really develop a, a, a strategy that helped us make money in these bad markets, but also in sideways market. So give you an idea of where we started. In 2000, we had 120 new traders come into the trading floor, and including myself. And in five years, there were only 20 of us left over. Um, and so we learned to develop in these type of markets and also in the financial boom and bust. Um, and so that was very good training ground for me in, in learning how the financial markets work. But also, even in the financial markets that we see, it's, it's not efficient. We think it's efficient, but it still isn't. There's definitely more efficiencies today than there was 20 years ago. Um, and that's what I see in crypto. Crypto's severely inefficient, um, and there's very unique opportunities. Um, in 2013, 
I fell down that proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole, always looking for new investments. And I made money investing in the stock market. But when I discovered Bitcoin, it was one of those aha moments. And I, I should backtrack and say, I first discovered Bitcoin in 2010, reading an article about Bitcoin. And I wasn't, I'm not a tech savvy person. So the only way during that time to obtain Bitcoin was through mining. So I emailed 10 of my friends, tech friends who are programmers. I was like, can you help me figure out how to create a Bitcoin miner? Uh, three responded and they all said, you're an idiot, avoid it at all costs. So that's what I did. And in 2013, when I saw where Bitcoin was at the time, I was totally shocked by it. That's one. And realized that this is a unique opportunity that I don't want to miss. And I believe that in our lifetimes, we're always presented with unique opportunities. The question is, if you see it as a unique opportunity, that's one. Two is, do you grab it? And I teach all my college students this. If you, if you recognize it's unique, you better take advantage of that. Um, and that's what I started doing. First, by education, by learning this and getting deep into the New York City Bitcoin and then crypto community, and then really started to say, hey, is this, a, is this investable asset that I should really consider? And that's what I started doing, but always continuing that journey of education. That's what I love about this space. There's always something new to learn. Um, and that's when I started getting deep into it. And as I got deeper and deeper, it was in May of, during consensus, if I remember correctly, it was like April or May of 2017, when I went to the consensus conference in New York City and I saw Deloitte and IBM there. And that was like a turning point for me that said, the institutions are starting to pay attention. Are they here yet? They're still not here today, but I do think that they're coming. And that was a first sign that they were coming. And that's when I started to really start to formulate, maybe I should quit my job and start to really build out a, a fund in this. Because I'll, I'll tell you a story in 2017, if you remember, there were exchanges that were, there was a kimchi premium in Korea, but even on the US side, there was arbitrage opportunities that was doing right after hours, like, after my job, I was taking advantage of this over the weekend. And the craziest spread I had was like a $5,000 spread between it was Coinbase and Gemini. And it was over a weekend. So you, if you didn't have the funds there, you, you wouldn't have take, been able to take advantage. I was luckily had some funds on there, took advantage of that and, and made 5000 per Bitcoin uh, just doing that trade. And and that is, those are the opportunities that existed in 2017. It was to the point where I realized I made more money than I did, that I will, working at Ernst & Young at the time when I was there. Um, and then during all of this time, Baruch College, where I got my uh, accounting degree, reached out and asked me if I want to teach a college course on this. And that's what I started teaching in uh, January 2018, been teaching crypto and blockchain since then. And, and launched my fund, Lightning Capital, and eventually added two other business partners with it to, to start taking advantage of the inefficiencies in the marketplace, start to build out fundamental analysis in this. And I truly believe this is the next revolution of what we're seeing, and we're still really early on. And eventually we'll see this asset become a multi-trillion dollar asset class. I would agree with that. Um, and that's a that's a great thank you for this. It's a great intro. And, you know, I, I, I took some notes here because there's really 
three things that stand out in, 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 in your story. One is there are a lot of new entrants, right? Newer generations have entered and some have succeeded. And then you have other you know, fund managers such as yourself who have seen different market cycles in their career. And the one thing that I wanted to ask is I personally see parallels between what happened in 2000, 2001 with the collapse of the NASDAQ valuations and what is happening in this crypto winter. The parallels that I see are that in the initial phase of the internet, what was lacking is a proper broadband infrastructure. And I remember this because my first job was for an internet portal, uh, as we used to label them at the time. And one of the gating factors in terms of launching applications and services was the number of users on broadband plain simple, something that we take for granted now. By the time the crash had happened and you know, the market uh, was uh, very well in a bear market in 2002, a lot of infrastructure had been built. And so it, it ushered into a new era of products and services development on this new infrastructure. So you know, I'd like to ask you what you think about that parallel. And I'd love to hear as well how you actually made money in a down market. You said you'd come up with your colleagues with ways to harvest something that wasn't going up. And you were quite successful at it because out of an attrition rate of 80%, I think you mentioned or more, you were one of the lone traders that remained on, on the payroll. Yeah, definitely. I could cover those and great questions. I would say that first, you know, when you start to compare the internet analogy, and I love this analogy that you brought up because I use it a lot, is that, I think we're still somewhere in 1995 of the internet era. And there's this great video with Bill Gates and David Letterman, with Letterman's asking him, if you ever see this interview, like, who cares about the internet? Um, and Gates is saying something along the line, like, you could watch it, you could listen to a, a game, like, live online. And he's like, yeah, have you, Letterman responds, have you heard of the radio? And, and you know, gets chuckles from the audience. And then Gates, goes on and says, well, you could record it and you could you could play it anytime you want. And then, you know, Letterman responds very quick with it. Have you heard of a tape recorder? Um, and everyone laughs at that now, but we forget that during that time in 95, if we take ourselves back to that year, no one believed that we would use the internet. And you're right, I totally agree that we just didn't have the infrastructure built out, which I believe is the same thing we're experiencing crypto. We don't have the infrastructure built out. How many calls I get when Bitcoin's at 69,000, like how do I buy Bitcoin? Like that, the fact that that's even a question worries me in the sense that we just haven't made it easy for people to buy Bitcoin. When you look at products like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, most people don't even know there's like something called a net asset value and that's trading at a discount to net asset value. And so there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace of what people are buying. What is this actually? And when I look at it, if for anyone who hasn't spent that much time analyzing using Bitcoin, Bitcoin's one of those products that you have to use to really understand, get the aha moment, is that it's like, I tell this to my friends, another analogy I use is the Tesla. So I never got understood why everyone was fascinated with the tesla until i drove one and my friend was like you have to drive my tesla i got in it and i was like and he was showing me all the features of the tesla and i i was like 
now I get it. Now I get why everyone loves the Tesla. And if, if you ever meet, a, I'm sure you have a lot of friends who are Tesla, if you're not a Tesla owner yourself, that they're always trying to sell you on the Tesla, right? <laughs> and anyone in crypto, I'd say, that understands crypto is always trying to sell crypto. Like, hey, you, you don't realize how valuable this is going to become. And what I'm recommending, granted, it's highly volatile, is that this is, in the long run, if we think in the long run, this is going to do really well. And if you think in 95, um, when you bought Amazon, Amazon hit this crazy peak in 1999. And then I think it was like $120. Uh, this is all I'm talking pre splits now, 120. And then it hits like a low of like five or $6. And then it just runs right back up in 20 years. And part of my prediction in, in this is that I do think this comes that we need it's a generational shift when i see younger kids they're all in crypto like i see meet very few parents these days that have young kids that don't ask me about crypto they're always asking hey like my kids in crypto can you explain what this this is is this a big scam and i see uh, i agree and i see founders and when i speak to founders who are literally some of them very successful raised millions of dollars in seed and series a building Web3 businesses, you talk to them about their experience going through a comp sci program at school and college. They don't have any notion of Web2 technical debt in their minds. They're building on Web3. And one could argue you're reinventing the wheel on some level, but it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is they're going out in the world and they're building with decentralization in mind. And that's a that's a, a huge paradigm shift in my in my opinion. And so it's it's very consistent with, with what you're saying. The other thing you said, and it, it this ties into the business model of what hedge fund managers do, because the business model, so you know, one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is to explain to people that starting a business like this is very much like you know, a tech startup, except, you know, in a tech startup, you'd sit in a room and ideate with your co-founders and investors about what the business model should be. The business model of a hedge fund is defined from the get-go. That is not where you differentiate yourself. Everyone makes money on the management of the assets and the performance on returning uh, absolute returns to your investors, right? And you get compensated on that. And there's a formula that's really a function of where the market clears for that kind of service. Where the ideation takes place is in coming up with investment ideas or trading ideas that will generate profits for your investors. And in order to do that, you made a big emphasis on learning. From the get-go, your, your approach was, I'm going to learn. And I suspect it also has to do with your background as a forensic accountant and really someone who wants to dive deep into topics because ultimately that is what you get paid for is your ability to go deeper and understand this asset class better than average investor is that is that sort of your approach as well yeah exactly and it's a matter it's not just learning because all the information what's great about crypto is all the information is out there you could go do some on-chain analysis you could do all of that but the key is also interpretation of the data and to recognize what the market's going to do with that. There's a, there's a great, you know, what I'm trying to understand today is a new paradigm shift of investing. If you've seen this documentary, Eat the Rich, have you seen that on GameStop? I have. Yeah. And the whole GameStop saga is a new phenomenon. And I don't think this phenomenon is going to end. I think most people will dismiss it and say, this is over. 
but you can't deny the fact that there are meme type of tokens, meme type of stocks now, um, and that there are these swarms or fan, if you want to call them fans of like Elon Musk that will push a Tesla or push a Dogecoin or Shiba Inu. Um, because fundamentally, when I look at Dogecoin, I, I have a hard time finding where the value is, but I can't dismiss Dogecoin because of the people behind it and are willing to spend it, even though it's an inflationary token, yes. if that makes sense. I agree. And, and that ties into, in my opinion, the, the three you know, main drivers, right, in, in the next decade, and why I believe strongly in this, is democratization and globalization of dollarized financial services. And what you just said is, is a manifestation of this. When you decided to start your business, how did you initially think about putting this to work? Did you have an existing thesis? Did you do any work ahead of time? Or was your initial inception one where you saw the opportunity at a macro level and decided to seek capital from investors to take advantage of this opportunity? Which one was it? Yeah, so I started in November of 2019. I, I did extensive research on Bitcoin and I produced this piece called the Bitcoin Squeeze, which was this thesis when Bitcoin was, I published this when Bitcoin was at 6,000. And I was saying that Bitcoin is coming up on what's called a halving event, where the rewards, the Bitcoin block rewards would get halved by miners. And when that happened in May of 2020, a couple things would result at least six months later. And I was pointing six months later, you'll see that when that supply supply gets cut in half, you're going to see a, a price adjust, adjustment in Bitcoin. But what I also pointed out were some new catalyst events that could occur that would cause the demand curve to also shift. This is me being an economics major. I'm always thinking about supply and demand. And so what happens is, we always overshoot the price and then we adjust back down. And so what I was saying was, there's a couple of things I said in there. One was, I think a, a sovereign nation will start to buy Bitcoin. Interesting enough, El Salvador was one. And then the other piece was, I was saying that, you know, another catalyst event could be billionaires start to see this as like a hedge against inflation. And we started to see that. We saw Paul Tudor Jones start to write about it and how they're putting 1% of their assets in it and other billionaires start to buy up. And so we, we saw, start to see that hype come in. Um, and so these are, and then I also mentioned um, an ETF would pass. I honestly thought it was a spot ETF, not a futures ETF. Um, I think we need a spot ETF and not a futures, um, but obviously Grayscale is fighting that in court with the SEC right now. But all of these catalyst events help shift that demand curve out. Um, and that was my thesis coming into it, uh, looking at what the fundamentals are, what would cause this shift and move. And then what I also saw were many people start to get involved into Bitcoin mining. And so I've, I've dug deep on the mining side that I understand the mining side really well. I have a small mining operation right now. Um, and we're even thinking about you know, build, we're actually in the process, I should say, of building out a mining operation and really expanding it because I, I'm, I find that whole industry very fascinating. And if you get the numbers to work, it does work well. It doesn't work when Bitcoin miners are over $10,000 per 100 tera, tera hash machine. 
But once you get that down to under 2000, which it is now, it, it makes it work as long as you're getting cheap electricity. And that's another if. Um, and the key is to access cheap electricity. So we're back to you going really deep, creating a supply and demand driven thesis, going to investors and articulating that thesis, looking at the full supply chain and the production chain of the underlying asset. So at that time, you're very, very much focused on Bitcoin only, right? Is that sort of fair statement when you're going out in the initial race? That was a fair statement. Um, but I will also say that I felt that with the Bitcoin having event, it would lead the alter alternative coins, if you want to call it that, to also move up with the rest of the market. It, it forces the rest of the market to move up. I think that makes a lot of sense because one has to go through the exercise of thinking, what is the market beta, right? What is Bitcoin an expression of? And I think the, the, the demand and supply argument is very potent. You mentioned some of the very prominent macro investors. And I recall exactly when Paul Tudor Jones came out and, and made those statements after positioning himself for it. And, you know, it ties into something and without diverging here on, on the topic of the inflation hedge. And I know Bitcoin has you know, received a lot of uh, bad press around its inability to hedge out the inflation. And I actually think this is a, a misleading view of the asset. And I'll tell you why. You know, I've held and traded gold for a very long time. One thing that people don't necessarily always understand about gold, and I believe the same applies to Bitcoin, although they're very different assets and are the expressions of very different things. But in regards to inflation, gold and I believe Bitcoin are anticipatory mechanisms. They're essentially discounting upcoming debasing of the dollar currency and loosening of financial conditions driven by monetary or fiscal policy. And if you look at it during the run-ups, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, they played that role. Uh, they actually rallied on the basis of supply being limited, as you pointed out, because the similarities here are striking, right? There's only so much gold you can bring onto the market at any given point in time if the demand starts heating up. The same thing applies with Bitcoin every day, and that supply is tightening and tightening and tightening. And I believe they actually played their role. Um, and the fact that they've sold off is an anticipation that monetary and fiscal policy is going to tighten. When you go out and you sell this to investors, what are the main objections? What are the main obstacles when you're trying to raise capital? Yeah, I think the, the main objections are all very similar still as to what retail is saying, was saying at the time, is that how is this not a Ponzi scheme? This is most people don't understand why a digital asset has value. And that's why I, I completely believe it's a generational shift, meaning it really took 20 some odd years for the internet to catch on where today we're on our, our phones are more powerful than many of our laptops. Um, and we use everything on there, social media, we check our stocks on there, everything's on our phone. If you ask someone in 1995, if that was even conceivable, no one would have even guessed that Facebook would come out. We would use Google all the time. All of these platforms that we use today, TikTok, I'm, I'm not a big social media user, but TikTok, Twitter, all of these products that we have at our disposal today. That's where I think crypto is today, where we don't even know what's going to happen in the future. But part of my prediction, when you talk about the inflation piece of it, is that 
I also think we're not there at the inflation hedge yet because we haven't priced everything in Satoshis. And Bitcoin is truly not a global currency yet. Uh, and that's what I believe it can be, a global currency that when I travel the world, I just was recently in Mexico City, that if I go to Mexico City, I don't need to convert to the pesos. I could just use Bitcoin. But today I can't do that. I have to find a very specific vendor if there are vendors out there to accept it. But they're also thinking in terms of dollars or pesos. Our minds are all programmed to think in terms of that. When we talk about Bitcoin, oh, what's one Bitcoin? We still think, hey, how much is it in US dollars? What we don't ask is how much is that in Bitcoin and know automatically, oh, is that amount in Satoshi's expensive or cheap? Because in reality, we're still converting it back to the dollar. And that's how we think of everything. And that's why I think it's also a generational shift there. Because if the younger generation already thinks in Satoshi's or in ETH, then that's how they're going to price everything. They could care less about the dollars. They're already thinking in terms of that. They don't want any dollars. They already they don't even have bank accounts, but they have like an Ethereum wallet or a Bitcoin wallet holding their crypto assets. And you're seeing it in digital collectibles that are quoted and priced in layer one currencies. And it's, uh, you know, in that sense, the valuation occurs within that numeraire. So I, I, I agree with you that as behaviors shift, these will become standard numeraires that people operate within. So who did you get your initial capital from? And was it enough to get started? Did you have to take the long view and, and bootstrap it? I'm intimately familiar with, with the hedge fund dynamics when it comes to running a PL and operating expenses, CapEx to get started. So I've got a pretty good idea of what it takes to attract talent, keep the lights on, and be able to produce a track record in a way that you're not financially stretched as a, an organization or a business. So tell me a little bit more about the operational considerations that you went through and how you were able to get this thing up and running. Yeah, so part of it was I knew I wanted to have a business partner before I launched it. Um, and I went out interviewing different people to, you know, I went through quite a lot of different, you know, people in my circle, try to figure out who would be a complement to what I'm doing and building out a business. Because I was always thinking about it as a business. Um, and I wanted to really make this into a large one. And it's still, you know, early stages. And as you said, this is like a startup and it really do feel like that. Um, and we're building out more businesses as we go along. So I eventually found a business partner, launched the fund, um, and initially launched it with really just, you know, bootstrapped it with our own funds, but also with our friends and family. And that's really how we first started as we're building a brand um, and, and helping people who don't understand crypto and education. And really in the first year, I would say a lot of it was focused on education. Today, we still have some of that, um, but it's less so. It's more so these days of like explaining what the edge is, what we're focusing on and how we're building out other pieces of the business. So we, we have a fund that trades the asset class, but we're also launching a venture capital fund, a mining business, and then a DeFi yield farming um, fund. So we're looking at these op unique opportunities and, and trying to take advantage of it in the marketplace. And who knows where that will develop as we start to expand the business. We did add a, a third business partner to, you know, a year after we launched um, to really help balance it. So it's not just it's three of us and we work really well cohesively as a team, 
to know how to grow this into hopefully a large conglomerate. How are the founder roles split up? How did you think about different activities, the different responsibilities? There's obviously a significant fiduciary component in terms of ensuring that some of the best practices in terms of custody of assets, compliance, even though you know, you're registered or not, it's best practice to operate as a regulated business, ensuring that your investors' funds are safe and protected. They're obviously operational concerns and you're an accountant, right? So the ability to report, the ability to provide liquidity to investors, how are the roles split in terms of how you've built out the organization over time? My first business partner, Jason Albanese, is the CEO of the entire operation. So he he's looking at a high level of how to grow the business and all the different business lines that I mentioned. Uh, Jock Percy is the CFO, chief financial officer of this, um, and making sure that we have we're situated properly to help grow this. And then I'm this chief investment officer of managing the portfolios, um, making sure our risk management tools are set up properly, that you know we're, we're protecting our investor dollars. And then ultimately, all three of us have some operational capacity on making sure we're following. And, and I do agree with you, even though there's no clarity on compliance, we're following traditional compliance rules in setting things up properly um, because we are fiduciaries. We are making sure that we don't lose our clients' funds. That's most important. Um, and so we're using the right service providers when it comes to custody um, that we don't have a rogue employee try to steal funds. Um, and so that's all very important to us. And that I think the other piece is just hiring the right people, right? People, this is the, the biggest problem right now, and my pitch to many colleges, is to have a degree in this asset class. But I think their biggest challenge is finding the right talent to want to, to that can teach this subject matter. Um, and so there's like a two-edged sword on that of trying to find the talent and also colleges coming on board that this is a real asset class. Um, I do think it, me being down in Florida now um, as a native New Yorker is that University of Miami has been very um, big on adding courses in this, um, expanding their, their curriculum in it. And that's going to create talent for the workforce so people, companies can start hiring in, in that pool of talent. It's interesting that you really tout the academic tie. And this, again, is something that I, I subscribed to as well early on. I've always tried to keep in touch with professors and alma maters. I believe it's a, a great way to pick up talent, but also to contribute to helping the next generation. And I view the, the work that you're doing as an adjunct, teaching about this new asset class, getting uh, your students to think about it, to spur new creativity, new ideas. They themselves are gonna start thinking about it, potentially even in a different way than you are. And whether they come uh, collaborate as interns, whether they join your firm or go out in the market and start building their own businesses or join other firms, I think it's a net positive. And I agree with you. It's still very early days. I think that should also make us relatively bullish in some ways because, you know, we're definitely not at a stage where every finance class is teaching financial instruments 101 and everyone knows what, you know, options and futures and forwards are. Uh, if you go into uh, finance, it is still a knowledge that you have to acquire through your own effort and, and to go out and seek it. And through other participants in the industry, 
In other words, it's not going to fall on your lap. And that is why the return earned to joining the industry, and I'm saying this for listeners who are thinking about joining the industry or younger listeners who are still in college, that is why the return earned on your work, on hours spent by going into this space is going to be higher because you're actually filling in the gap in, in knowledge. Just to summarize sort of getting up and running, how hard was it? Do you think this is something that you'd do again? Do you recommend starting a business in the space? Do you recommend starting a hedge fund? How easy was it for you and how much did luck play a part in this process? I think in any startup, it, all most people see are the results of a startup, of a success of many startups, but every startup is really hard to do. Um, obviously, I think there's there's a that saying that, you know, if you work hard, luck comes with it as to how much is luck, how much is hard work. I, I don't know. Maybe I think there's a part of me that I have gotten very lucky in my life. Like when I look at my journey of where I came from and where I am at today, I feel very fortunate. Um, and but I also will say that, like, I work, worked my butt off on all of this. I and I will say, like, all these curveballs that come at you just can't quit. Like you just keep going, pushing forward. And it's, it's kind of like anything, like when you think about competition in sports, it's just pushing through. It's like that guy, um, if you follow David Goggins, I think that's his last name, who like ran a hundred miles with a broken foot and he just never quit. Like <laughs> it, it's kind of like that, probably nothing close to what he's done. But like, you, I think you get my point is that a lot of this is really hard. I met one time, um, I had a lot of mentors. I've been lucky in the sense that I had a lot of good mentors, very successful, well-known um, entrepreneur in New York City that somehow I got connected with through network at Baruch College. And, you know, I was telling him, I was being very forward, like, oh, this is really hard to do. And he's like, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Absolutely. And, Right. And that's the reality is that any startup and anything that you try to do, if you want to go off on your own, it is not easy um, and it is difficult. And that's why only a few can can make it. Um, and I think you know it's just a matter of getting it into your head that quitting is not an option. Um, and that is always in my mind. Like when we hit these roadblocks, it's a matter of, OK, how do I solve the problem? And that's one thing when you, you mentioned a piece that I thought was interesting, critical thinking and critical thinking is so important in college students that I think sometimes we forget to teach that at the academic level, because my students sometimes say, well, professor, what's the right answer for this? And, and my response is there actually isn't a right answer. Yeah. It's your job to go and figure out what it is. That's right. And you tell me if your answer is right or not based on facts that you have collected. And so that's that's what I try to instill in the students. It's about, hey, if you have a problem, figure out how to solve that problem. Agreed. I think on that point, there are two things. And before we, we move on to this, I keep coming back to that clip from the movie The Founder, the McDonald's story. Yeah, uh, I persistence. Love that one. Persistence, persistence, persistence. And as you know, as someone who started a, a business yourself, you, you, I think you communicated it very well. I went through the same journey uh, several times, and it's very important to tell listeners that not everyone can be an entrepreneur, and most people will not succeed at it. It doesn't make it a foolish endeavor. It's just that it will take 
an abnormal amount of effort and some luck along the way to make it happen. As long as you know this and you have the persistence, you should go if you have an idea that's sound and you have backers and you have mentors. Uh, another thing that's important is it takes a village to grow a business. You need partners, you need mentors, you need advisors, you need good investors. And it sounds like you put all this together to get this, uh, this going. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you didn't sugarcoat it because I think it's very important for listeners to know that. So getting to the actual business of the hedge fund, which is you have knowledge, you continue to develop knowledge, you have this in-depth understanding of the entire value chain. You seem very focused on Bitcoin to begin with, but with an eye on other coins down the market cap uh, scale. And as innovation comes online, I'm assuming you're keeping an eye on this. So you've got this initial sort of supply and demand thesis. How do you achieve your initial success? Like what were the key drivers of making money for your investors? Part of the key was looking at other tokens that investors are overlooking and that there was some value proposition attached to it. I think that part of the big thing is trying to figure out what is the fundamental analysis around these tokens. The biggest flaw in this industry right now, and, and it shows me how nascent we are, is that everything is tied together. So if we look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, the way I see it, they're two very different assets. They, they should not be even correlated with each other. And yet it reminds me of back in the late 90s again, where when a dot com website went down, uh, like their servers went down because their servers were overloaded, their stock went down and every dot com also went down, if you remember this. And so it to me, it was at that time, it's like, well, why is this dot com any relation to this other one? Like even like eBay.com went down. So uh, what is it? Microsoft.com went down too. And it's like, they're two different business models. And that is the same way I'm seeing crypto today that we're starting to see some decoupling. And I think the challenge right now for us is to try to find the tokens that will decouple from mainstream tokens. Um, and that's the data sets that we're trying to look for. Um, the other piece, um, you know, I mentioned, um, when I spoke to you is about Ethereum. We're digging deep into Ethereum and understanding what's going on with this new protocol change in August of 21, which was EIP 1559. And then also with the merge happening, we see some unique things happening with Ethereum in the next six to 12 months. So it's a matter of finding those type of um, details to figure out how do we position the portfolio. Now, the other piece that I'll add is that we've been also working on more systematic trading strategies. Um, you know, one of my fears in seeing markets like this is that we may enter a more sideways market. A lot of cash is being put on the sidelines. There's a lot of macro events that we have to see of how the Fed's gonna react because you don't wanna fight the Fed for sure. And then the other piece is how's the election gonna turn out next week? Um, and we, all of that has a large effect in how the traditional markets function and also how the crypto markets function. And so everyone's paying attention because regulation can be a risk or it could be a benefit. We just don't know which side they're gonna pick right now. Um, so for me, it's still a risk bucket that we have to look out for. So, so you very much have this top-down approach, regulation, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and just the overall technology 
and adoption potential of these different assets and an understanding exactly what those technologies underpin and what is the potential of the ecosystem. So then you apply what it seems to me, and again, I keep going back to your accounting background, very much a bottoms up analysis, like finding this decoupling. So you mentioned Ethereum, um, you started with Bitcoin and you had a thesis there. You sounds like you're, you're digging deeper into Ethereum. There is a paradigm shift with the merge. Um, can you talk to us a little bit at a high level, how you're seeing this play out? Obviously the tokenomics have changed and that's going to have an impact. So talk to us a little bit more about Ethereum and what your views are on that. Yeah, one is that what most people I think don't recognize is that when there was a change, Ethereum improvement protocol, EIP 1559, where in August of 21, they started to burn Ethereum. So there's a certain percentage of Ethereum that's being burned when you transact on it. Now, that's one piece. What the, with the merge, what happened with the merge now is that we switched from proof of work to proof of stake. And so now for you to mine, you have to stake 32 ETH in one miner. Um, that's, that's cap. And you generate yield from that. Now, what's happening with this is that when you do that, you're actually locking up your tokens. Even the yield is locked up. And so this will only, and a decision to unlock it is planned to happen sometime in late 2023, but no one knows if that will happen. And that is called the Shanghai upgrade. Now, what's unique about that is if you follow Ethereum since the beginning, Vitalik has been talking about switching to proof of stake pretty much since the beginning. And it took them this long to switch over to proof of stake. Um, I almost think the, the ETH that's being staked that's locked up right now will take just as long for them to approve an upgrade to unlock those stake, one, the stake yields and also the stake tokens. If we see, there's an interesting lean, linear progression that we're going to issue in our report of where we think the amount of ETH staked will be. Um, but right now it's 12% of all ETH outstanding. That's one. And we see that increasing. So that's going to get locked. More and more ETH are going to get locked up. That's, that's one. Then also the fact that the merge happened really a, less than two months ago um, in middle of September, September 15th. And now we're starting to see because when the merge happened, you don't have a high inflation rate for Ethereum anymore, which was the case pre-merge. And so once that stops and you start burning from EIP 1599, we actually get a deflationary token. And so it's actually going negative. Every, every month we're seeing more burning than issuance from that uh, staked ETH. And that's only gonna, as the usage starts to increase. And so a couple things we believe is that usage will start to increase over time. That we're going back to the, so supply is gonna get cut, demand's gonna start to increase. We also think that, I also believe China's coming back in. China's been kind of the sleeping giant in some sense in crypto. And I think people are already coming back in. Could they start to decide, hey, we're going to legalize crypto again. So mining starts to operate in a legal fashion. I do believe mining is occurring in China, even in an illegal manner uh, amongst their citizens. And I think when they legalize it, that could be a huge catalyst where people start to really push it up. What's very fascinating to me is how much 
Ethereum is being used even in this bear market. Like NFTs are still very popular. It's out of the news media cycle, but board apes are still selling for quite a lot. Absolutely. And, and to your point, it's it's interesting because I've heard this twice, actually, on one of the previous episodes, that there is anticipation that China will come back online. What probability to assign to that, obviously, is, is not for me to comment on. But I'm seeing experts talking about that as part of the adoption thesis. The other thing I want to go back, so we, we essentially went from, in the proof of work tokenomics of Ethereum, you had essentially a net inflation, positive inflation of around 2.7%, right? If you, if you took out base fee burn and the option to speed up mining uh, and the fees earned by the miners in order to provide a faster processing of transactions, and that resulted at, at about sort of de definitely a net positive inflation of around 2.7%. Now, with this merge and the new tokenomics, you're absolutely right in that the more successful the network is, and we are seeing tremendous adoption and very positive trends, especially on layer two implementations that run on Ethereum and that require the Ethereum network to function and process more and more transactions ultimately, even though they're abstracting at the next layer, a lot of the complexity and the number of transactions. And so I think it creates an incentive for people to continue locking up their coins as you rightfully so pointed out. So taking them out of the circulation and there's this deflationary mechanism built in to maintain the supply. And so whether it's a calculated bet or an unforeseen consequence, the more successful Ethereum is going to be, and I believe it will be, going back to, yes, NFT minting and trade counts have held really well. Um, volumes in dollar terms and fiat terms are down, but obviously there's a double whammy there. There is NFTs denominated in ETH or SOL, and then SOL and Ethereum itself denominated in dollars. And if you actually compute volumes, they're going to be down significantly, right? As a result of that. But the activity is still relatively vibrant. And so I think this, this augurs very well for your thesis. Personally, I subscribe to it, not to talk your book or my own book, but I happen to be very bullish because structurally, you've got a network effect where developers are continuing to come up on this chain. It's a straightforward path for anyone wanting to enter Web3. And I do believe there's a first mover advantage in that sense. So we're now in the current winter and uh, you talked about a sideways market and you talked about building systematic strategies to be able to take advantage of those conditions before the next bull market emerges. So talk to us a little bit about how you navigated the crypto winter, how are you navigating it now? So just to give our listeners a little bit of context as to how you as a manager to fulfill your fiduciary duties, both in a downturn and then positioning yourself for the next upside, how are you approaching this market and how has it changed in the way you're able to execute your views? What I think has changed quite a lot from when I launched it in January 2020 till today is that there's more infrastructure already being built out. And that infrastructure is going to improve over time to allow us to be more systematic in what we're doing. So we're not, you know, a lot of when we first started, it was a lot of manual trading. Um, and that's slowly changing over time as we have the right tools um, in our tool set to be able to implement these more algorithmic type of trading mechanism, especially in a sideways market. Um, and it's really just an analyzing what is are the data sets that we need to look at to kind of anticipate where the market is heading and where the sentiment is. 
The sentiment matters a lot in understanding where funds are flowing to and from the market. And just tracking, if, if you track it just on the traditional market side, uh, we have the largest M2 supply right now. Um, and historically, that means we're getting close to a market bottom on the traditional market side. We're always associating with traditional TradFi space with how does it work in the crypto space and trying to gather that data. Sometimes it's more limited than what we can see, but hopefully in this space, we start to see more and more information and be able to interpret it a little better than other our competitors to be able to know, okay, how should we how should we place our bets in this? Um, and that's really the key. And I think over time, we see that it's one of the reasons why we're launching a VC fund. We're seeing proper pricing for, we want to support crypto infrastructure. And so we want to have equity stakes in startups um, and building it. And these are the good times to also be investing in that where pricing is a lot better than they were a year ago. And that's we're looking for those type of opportunities. Understood. In talking to especially venture capitalists in the space, they share with me that, you know, although so it's interesting, even though seed stage valuations have actually not dropped, if anything, they're slightly up year on year from last year. Obviously, later stage rounds are reflecting public market valuations in a much deeper way. Uh, but what you're seeing, though, is at least what I'm perceiving is the flow of ideas and projects continues and the quality and the commitment, I believe, is more genuine. You've weeded out the tourists, people going into the space right now, teams that are thinking about ideas and business want to see the space succeed. They're not just in for the momentum ride. They're genuinely core believers in the thesis that you, know, you and I have discussed over this podcast so far. And they want to contribute and they actually want to build tangible value. So I think the positioning there, you know, to be to have your hands both on the liquid sides and away from it, even though it's highly competitive. Let's face it. What are your what is your position on the crowding of venture capital investment in the space? It's certainly very popular. A lot of capital has been raised or committed towards venture capital funds. How do you compete in that environment versus some of your liquid strategies that have a very uh, well-established bottoms-up approach that I believe is highly differentiated? A lot of it comes down to we're, we're coming in as strategic investors. And so we are, have success in building businesses, um, you know, my partners and I. And so we're looking to help them think about different revenue streams, how to really grow the business, what the marketplace is going to accept. And that's how we approach it. We're not just investing money. Like if, if they're just taking our funds alone, that's not enough for us. We add value in other ways. Um, and that's important. And I think a lot of it is in this type of market, you don't even need a lot of capital to really grow the business. The key is, approaching it with the right business plan and approaching the market correctly, the market will tell you if your product is good or not. Well, you've got this immediate feedback loop and I'm seeing with some of the projects that I'm involved with, of course, you don't want to launch and hype up something that's not going to deliver. But what is interesting is to your point, the immediate feedback that you can get, even I would actually argue pre launch with a select group of users by incentivizing them, for example, by giving them a promise of utility tokens that will give them privileged access if things work out. There's an entire set of incentives that this 
uh, new technology or set of technologies enables to get people engaged. And the engagement metric that I look at is only increasing over time. You see utility NFTs growing in interest and solicitation. And I believe this is very healthy because what it basically means is that you have an ecosystem of users that are willing to get involved. And people talk about the ownership economy. Truly to me, that's one of the angles is how do you get involved in the development of the, uh, of the ecosystems that are being developed and participate in it and potentially even earn financial rewards for doing that without necessarily being part of those teams. So I, I think it's, there's a lot of potential there to quickly churn out innovation and very quickly pivot and adapt to the demand. And it's sort of what we saw, and I'll, I'll close on this, going from the 90s where you had very sort of rigid software development processes. And then in the 2000s, we started evolving towards layers of abstraction, but as well as agile development. And I believe this is agile development with the financial incentive added to it, where everyone is essentially working together. The community, the builders, the developers are working together and everyone is aligned in terms of their incentives. So that is, I think, another big driver as far as adoption going forward. Can you uh, leave us with a note as to your vision for the asset class, for what you with Lightning Capital Partners would like to see happen over the next few years and what your your success would be measured in? You know, how do you look back when you're five years from now and say, we have been successful, we have achieved our goals? What would that look like? Yeah, that's a that's a very great question. I would say, one, when I look at the, the future, I sort of spoke to this earlier, is that I really think this is a generational shift where as the younger generations start to enter college and then start entering the workforce, they're the ones that are gonna be adopting it a lot faster. When you look at who's on all the social media sites, it's the younger generation that's on it. It's people who are in their 20s right now that have grown up with this are, are on their phones all the time. Uh, back to the teenage kids that I know from my friends is that they're on their phones all the time. It's hard to peel those phones away from their hands. And now I'm sure they're trading crypto or they're involved in crypto in some ways. And as, they, as that shifts over and as an older generation, I include myself in that, start to get better and better education in it. And which is why I'm, I'm a big proponent of education in this space. Uh, that that will lead them to understanding why this is not a Ponzi scheme, why this is not a scam, why this technology can actually change the world. Now, part of one, one thing that we've been working on at the firm is trying to develop our mission statement. And one, the reason why I got involved into Bitcoin first and then understanding crypto, the revolutionary impact of what this can actually do to the rest of the world. Um, and, and one of those anecdotes is looking at how I think as the nonprofit Women Who Code in Afghanistan in 2013, where women who have no financial rights were, can't open up a bank account, but could code online and get paid in Bitcoin. Those same women became refugees because the Taliban came in. And as they left their countries, they took Bitcoin with them. And that is that is fascinating to me because a lot of when I look at and I'm not I don't have the answers to all this. When I look at developing countries, my my feeling when I read about them is that they have oppressive governments. 
And this is a way to fight those oppressive governments because you control the money, you have the money in your account, and you can choose if you can get into another country, you can bring all those assets with you. Um, because the hardest thing is going to another country and having $50 in your pocket and trying to figure out what to do. Um, but now you can actually accumulate real wealth. That is my vision. And I, I think if we can equalize the opportunity set for the rest of the world, because where I, when you talk about luck, I am very lucky I am born in this country. Uh, I think this is, despite of what people say, negative things about the U.S., the U.S. creates so many opportunities for us. And we are, every one of us that's living here is very lucky to be here. Um, and I think a lot of other people don't have that opportunity. And I truly believe crypto will be that factor that will hopefully give them, afford them that opportunity um, to be successful in life. And I think my feeling is everyone in the world is always trying to make a better life for themselves and for their kids. And that's a common thread amongst everyone. I think it's a great way to close this podcast. I agree wholeheartedly, not because I'm trying to agree, but I actually believe strongly in what you said. And, and I think it's one of the strong promise. I, I want to go beyond calling it an asset class, this new technology, this paradigm shift. So thank you for closing on this. Thank you for sharing your vision, your journey, how you got to where you are. I was very interested to discuss this with you today and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. This was such an honor to, to be part of this podcast. This podcast is produced by Radio Venture Management, RBM. RBM is not an investment advisor. This podcast is not an offer to sell or an invitation for an offer to acquire shares or interests in any entity comprising the funds mentioned in the podcast, nor is it an invitation to apply to participate in any entity comprising the funds. This podcast is not an offering or placement of shares or interest in any entity comprising the funds in any jurisdiction and should not be construed as such. No information in this podcast will form the basis of any contract. Any future decision by a recipient or other person to apply to participate in the funds will be based solely on the final offering and constitutional documents of the applicable fund entity once available and not on this podcast. This podcast is intended only for informational purposes and convenient reference and is not intended to be comprehensive. Certain information contained in this podcast may constitute forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results, or the actual performance of the funds or underlying investments may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking statements. The information in this podcast has not been audited or independently verified. Neither RVM nor any of its officers, employees, members, related parties, and affiliates, as applicable, makes any representation or gives any warranty in each case expressed or implied as to the fairness, accuracy, reasonableness, completeness, or correctness of this podcast or its contents. Accordingly, no reliance whatsoever should be placed on this podcast or its contents.